0: Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com.
1: My next guest is a career NASA researcher who's focused on the nearby planets and their geologic behavior. Now she's director of the Planetary Science Division of NASA's Science Mission Directorate, and she's a recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. Lori Glaze joins me now in studio. Dr. Glaze, good to have you with us.
0: Great to be here. Thank you.
1: And planetary geologic behavior, that's volcanoes and the movement of the surface and things happening on the planets. Tell us more about the purpose of that research.
0: Well, a lot of what we're interested in is trying to understand how all of the planets formed and how they evolved and changed over time. And, of course, volcanism is a major process that happens on the Earth and on Mars and the Moon and Mercury and Venus, all of the terrestrial planets. And so that's really trying to understand how volcanism has shaped what those planets look like today.
1: So, you're basically a dermatologist of the planets.
0: <laughs> kind of, yeah, understanding the surface of the planets.
1: And how does that inform the missions, or is it just the pure science to understand that is the mission?
0: So that's a part of what we're trying to understand, and we're really trying to understand the planets as a whole and the roles they've played in our solar system formation and the evolution of the solar system. So our missions from NASA, we take the next step from looking through a telescope. We actually send spacecraft to the planets to look up close, either orbiting around the planets and getting lots of images so we can understand the planets from images and other geophysical information. Or sometimes we land missions like Perseverance Rover that's now driving around on the surface of Mars, and that's another way that we can explore.
1: By the way, my own ignorance, have we landed anywhere else besides the moon (laughs) and Mars?
0: At this point, those are the major planets we've landed on, although there was a European lander that landed on a comet, and we actually have sent uh, a couple little landers, or uh, I think uh, JAXA sent a couple landers. That's Japan agency sent someone to an asteroid. But yeah, the main planets would be the moon and Mars.
1: And speaking of asteroids, that's another area of interest for you, the Mm -hmm. near-Earth objects that I guess potentially could endanger the Earth.
0: Yeah, that's a big part of our program. We call it planetary defense. We're planetary defenders, meaning that we're on the lookout all the time looking for asteroids or comets that could eventually perhaps run into Earth and be dangerous for us here. We don't want to experience something like the mass extinction that happened, the big asteroid impact that wiped out the dinosaurs. So we're looking out for those big ones. And then just last year, we tested a mission called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, where we actually on purpose crashed a spacecraft into an asteroid so that we could see just how well we could change its orbit.
1: Right. And we found that even that little bit of impact, an inch in space, is millions of miles by the time the thing gets here.
0: Exactly. If you have enough time, That little tiny change over time turns into a big difference. And for planetary defense, our goal is to make sure that when that asteroid passes over Earth's orbit, Earth is out of the way. We've already moved, and it comes in behind us instead of smashing into us.
1: Sure. And as a girl, were you the type of child who, when everyone else got Barbie dolls for Christmas, you got a telescope?
0: (laughs) Well, Actually, no, I was still into Barbie dolls, but I was always really into math and science. So I really did enjoy building sets and things like that, Legos and erector sets and things like that. I was really into that. Both of my parents were engineers. My brother ended up being an engineer, so lived in a household that was pretty conducive to that sort of thing.
1: And when looking at the planets, I mean, we still use telescopes. How much of the research is observation and how much is calculation, if that makes sense?
0: That's a really good question, and particularly for myself, my personal background, my research area was in the kind of theoretical research. I did a lot of modeling work, meaning that I would develop a mathematical equation that could describe how a lava flow moves on the surface of Mars, and then I would use imaging data from our spacecraft to compare with my model to help us better understand how those volcanoes would have worked on Mars in the past. So it kind of all works together.
1: Right. So on Earth Volcano flows have a certain characteristic, and then if you build in the factors of temperature, gravity atmospheric makeup, you can then maybe extrapolate what would happen on Mars if we could watch a volcano.
0: That is exactly right. And then we can see today, lava flows on Mars that erupted millions of years ago, we can see what they look like when they finished flowing, and we can use our models to work backwards and tell us, well, what would that have looked like, you know, again, changing the gravity and the atmospheric conditions and that sort of thing how would that have erupted? What would it have looked like while it was erupting? And what can that tell us about how volcanoes work on Mars?
1: I'm getting the whiff of artificial intelligence coming into this type of work.
0: <laughs> it could eventually.
1: All right. We're speaking with Dr. Lori Glaze. She's director of the Planetary Science Division at NASA and a presidential rank award winner. And why they pick you for a rank award among, <laughs> I mean, you're one of a couple of hundred, so you're an elite person here.
0: Yeah. Well, I will tell you the things that went into my nomination this go round were that, you know, we recently went through the depths of a pandemic. And one of the things that we were able to do that I was able to help my organization during that pandemic was to make sure we got that Mars Perseverance rover launched. It launched in July of 2020. So many of us may recall that in March of 2020, we were all sent home. But that was kind of at the peak time that that mission really needed to finish all of the final integration of all the piece parts. We shipped the spacecraft to Florida to be integrated onto the rocket that was going to launch from Cape Canaveral and that was really hard to do we had to basically mobilize the entire agency to make sure we had safe at work practices for all of the individuals we you know we put people's health first and foremost certainly above the launch of a spacecraft but as stewards of taxpayers' dollars, we recognize if we missed a launch date, you can only go to Mars every two years, and that's fairly expensive to, to wait another. I mean, it's so, hundreds
1: of millions of dollars. Right? Hundreds
0: of millions of dollars. You're exactly right. So we didn't want to do that. So we worked really hard to keep our personnel safe. We worked on ways to transport them across the country so that, again, they kept their health and didn't put them at risk. And uh, we were able to successfully launch that mission, as well as two others that came along a little later that that, but still had the bulk of that work going on during the pandemic. And that was a big part. There were other things as well, but that was one of the main things.
1: So you had a challenge maybe similar to, say, the FAA, where people have to operate consoles and monitor things in close proximity to one another. Did the technology available as of 2020 enable people to do some of this remotely, as it did in a lot of industries, actually?
0: We did move a lot of the work to be remote. A lot of the work for, you can imagine, software development were things that we were able to move those folks home, and they were able to stay at home and stay safe and and complete that work in a remote environment. But a lot of our work is hands-on. When you're getting ready to launch a spacecraft, it is hands-on people in what we call a clean room. So we already have processes that we require when we assemble spacecraft that they have to be dressed in what we call a bunny suit with masks and gloves and hats and you know the whole thing but we had to then work the protocols for how we made sure as they transitioned into those clean rooms that everyone was healthy and safe and not interacting with each other and you know so we put a lot of extra steps in the process.
1: Yeah because clean room gear say in semiconductor manufacturing or something like this the particulates they worry about are much smaller I think than the microbes that (laughs) were harming people yeah so once they were in they're okay. Has the robotic capability of the rover been able to take its mask off?
0: <laughs> it definitely took its mask off. As soon as it landed on Mars, it was ready to go. And Percy's been doing a great job now since February of uh, 2021. Uh, so we're coming up almost on three years of activity on surface of Mars, doing an amazing job.
1: And on the research front, let's get back to that. What are your priorities of the moment? What do you hope mm-hmm. to do next? What, what are you working on?
0: So we got a couple big priorities. I mean you're a director, so but you still
1: do some research hands on.
0: <laughs> well, I don't actually get to do a whole lot of research myself these days, but my role I see is primarily enabling our entire planetary science community across the United States to do the research and can keep that science moving forward. So that's my main job right now. But I'll tell you, from our division standpoint, from NASA's standpoint, the next big things for planetary, we've got a big mission that's going to be launching next October. It's a mission to fly a spacecraft to a moon of Jupiter called Europa. Europa is really exciting. It's ice covered, but beneath the ice is a global ocean that could actually support life today. And so we're going to orbit around Jupiter and fly by Europa and understand whether or not that ocean might be habitable. We also have a really big year coming up for the moon. We've been working a lot with our human exploration side of the house. Humans, of course, we're working with Artemis that are going to send humans back to the moon. But this year we're sending several NASA payloads to the surface of the moon in a brand new program where we're, Using commercial capabilities, brand new commercial companies that have never sent planetary missions before are going to be landing on the moon. And the first two of those are expected to launch in January. So we're really excited.
1: Yeah, so that the planetary and the geologic type of research that your group does does inform what the missions are doing in terms of sending th- probes out there.
0: Absolutely. It's the science really that drives the big questions and then based on those big questions, NASA determines which missions we want to fly to answer those questions.
1: And by the way, how big is Europa?
0: So Europa as a moon of Jupiter is about the size of our moon, approximately. It's a pretty cool place. Um, I'll just mention that part of the big spacecraft that's going to fly, the Power and Propulsion Unit was actually built at Applied Physics Lab just up the road here in Laurent Maryland. And I can also just give a quick plug for folks that if you want to send your name on the spacecraft, we have a program called Message in a Bottle. We've got two million names already. People are sending their names to Europa. You too can do that.
1: All right. And (laughs) just a final question, I guess, philosophical or scientific philosophical, but we can calculate what's going on with a lot of algorithms based on what we know of a planet and we can observe it from a certain distance, either from Earth or from closer, but in launching a probe that would actually orbit something like Europa, you're really right there, so that the closeness of observation is really important, as well as the calculating side.
0: Yeah, it's incredibly important to be this close. There's some things that we can do in that proximity that there's no way we can do from Earth or further away. One of those things is we think that it's possible there could be geysers on Europa that are spewing out water that if there were biology in that ocean might be represented in those geysers. We can fly through those, perhaps, and sample those. We also have the ability, when we're this close, with our really sensitive instrumentation, we can tell you. You, how deep is that ocean? How salty is that ocean? We can measure that using magnetometers and things like that to tell us how salty is it? What is the makeup of the material on the surface? And those are the kinds of things that we can only do when we're close by.
1: And by the way, how long does it take to get to Europa?
0: Well, that's a good question. It kind of depends on what rocket you have and what route you take. So our mission, Europa Clipper, is going to launch in October of 2024. It's going to arrive at Jupiter in 2030. On the way, it's going to fly by Mars and get a gravity assist to kind of give it, you know, an oomph. It actually flies by Earth and then Mars, and then it gets these two little double bumps to throw it out to uh, Jupiter. Uh, I'll just tell you, just for reference, the European Space Agency also has a mission going to the Jupiter moons, uh, different moons. And they launched last year. They get there later because on a different rocket and different trajectory. So yeah, it takes about six years.
1: <laughs> and then you got to get the stuff back.
0: Well, we get the data back. We don't bring it back here to Earth. We're going to actually collect the data with the spacecraft and then we send the information back via radio signals and then we'll receive the data here through our deep space network antennas. But we don't actually bring the spacecraft back. That's a pretty rare occurrence when we actually bring the (laughs) spacecraft
1: back. So the data comes back the speed of light.
0: It does come back speed of
1: light. And we like that. Dr. Lori Glaze is director of the Planetary Science Division at NASA and a Presidential Rank Award winner this year. Thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Tomorrow in our Rank Award series, Tim Curry, a long-standing advisor at the Office of Personnel Management. will post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before.
3: So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission.
2: Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. it's um, It's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs?
3: Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human centered It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So, for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful.
2: Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, Chief People Officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus?
3: Isn't that a great title? I just love the title, Chief People Officer. And I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA. At this point in time, we're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture, because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, We think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways.
2: This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership?
3: There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins